What's up guys, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. In this episode, we are talking to a nerd about Hop, and his name is The Hop Nerd. Let's get into the podcast. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Okay guys, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is doing exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to challenge those over-the-top health and safety gone mad practices, and we're here to change the perception of health and safety. We do that by providing short-form how-to videos on YouTube and long-form interviews just like this one on the podcast, which also come out on YouTube. So if you're new here, hit that subscribe button and the bell and all those buttons that you're asked to press every time you watch a YouTube video. Like you can't even watch a video anymore without being asked to do God knows how many things. But seriously though, like, you know, hit subscribe. If you're on, YouTube, if you're on iTunes, give us a rate and review and all that, you know, come on. Give some back, get me. Anyway, in this episode, The Hop Nerd. If you check him out, he's got a podcast. He's got an online portal called Hop University. We'll link that in the description below. And just essentially, like, he's pretty much rebranding safety, but the American version, like, literally. Like, everything was so similar. I Even wears his cat backwards. Like, it's it just like, to be honest, most Americans do, I think. I'm not really sure. Um, but... Wearing your cap backwards is definitely more socially acceptable in the in the, in America. But we talk all about HOP, which is human and organizational performance. We talk about the Heimrich triangle, the, the principle, talk about zero. We talk about how um, our guest is a recovering safety professional, doesn't prefer, refer to himself as a safety professional. We talk about his podcast. We talk about uh, the kind of just our journeys as well and how similar they are and our perspectives. We just have generally just a wicked chat. And if you like this, then make sure you check out the webinar that Rebound and Safety has been invited to do in conjunction with Safety FM and the Hop University, which is the Hop Nerd, um, where we're just going to be talking about making safety fun, making it more entertaining. Um, there's loads of people on it. There's me from Rebound and Safety, there's Sam, um, that's his name. I always do that, don't I? I forget to actually say their name and then just drop it out. Sam Goodman uh, is his name. So there's Sam Goodman, the hot nerd as well. And you've got Jay Allen from Safety FM, the Jay Allen show. And then you've got Abby from the Safety Justice League. So, you know, they've decided to extend the olive branch over the pond and bring in a very posh British accent. I don't know, it probably sounds posh to them, doesn't it? Um, so yeah, so if you like this, this is kind of like a, a little taster to that. You can have a listen. If you like the way we interact, you like our chemistry, so to speak, then you can um, you can come and get some more and loads of people that are kind of like my try and make safety fun. I have no idea what we're going to talk about. I have no idea what it's going to look like. I'm just like safety, entertaining. Yeah, I'm there. Let's get get me get me in, bruv. Do you know what I mean? I'm in. When is it? First of June. Boom. I'm there. So UK time, that's 1st of June, 4 o'clock. Um, but, you know, if you want to come along, 
DM me and I'll uh, I'll do a little bit of DMing with Sam, get you some details, get you on over, and you can have a you can have a listen. So check that out. I'll put links and stuff in the description as well. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's gonna be good. Anyway, I'm gonna stop waffling on. Um, this was just probably one of my favourite conversations so far. To be honest, we had that many technical problems in this that one, it was just unbelievable. We lost all concept of time. I haven't even edited it at this point, so I couldn't tell you how long this episode is. Um, got a funny feeling it's going to be quite long. Recorded it on a Saturday. <coughs> Ooh, excuse me. Recorded it on a Saturday um, afternoon, evening for me, morning for Sam. Um, we just have generally like a really good chat. What really resonates for me is just how similar our frustrations are, even though we're separated by such a vast ocean, literally. Um, but how similarly we are just so frustrated with those kind of old school health and safety practices. Um, see if that's what resonates for you. If it is, let us know in the comments below. If you listen on um, iTunes and all that, obviously there is no comments below because you're probably driving or something and I would not advocate that you do any comments below whilst driving or anything like that. So you can DM me on any of the um, social media platforms that will come onto your screen right now if you're on YouTube. And if you're not on YouTube, it's uh, Rebranded Safety. You know it's not. No, it's not on Twitter. I've done it again, haven't I? I've done it again. It's safety rebranded on Twitter. I know it's extremely annoying for me as well. On LinkedIn, it's rebranded safety. On LinkedIn, it's also James McPherson. Come and chat to me personally. I would love to chat to y'all. <laughs> See what I did there? Uh, on Facebook, it's rebranded safety as well. So come on over. Let's have a chinwag. Let me know what you thought of this episode. But without further ado, let's hear from a voice other than mine. Mr. Samuel Goodman, the hot nerd. I'd recorded one with Todd Conklin not too long ago. Yeah. And uh, we had sit down in a nice little area and recorded this beautiful podcast. And we got all the way through it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know what happened. I don't know if I forgot to press record or if something happened, but we had to redo it. No way. <laughs> it was oh. awful. It was awful. Yeah. It happens all the time. Those little things. There's so much to think about, isn't there, sometimes? I think people think that, that podcasting is really easy. Anyway, Sam, right, second time lucky. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Happy to be here once again. <laughs> so everyone listening now will be like, what are they on about? This is actually the second well, time that we've recorded we, this. We, 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 had, we had jumped in and, and did it. And absolutely. I mean, I think I said some really brilliant things. I think yeah. it's awesome. And now it's going to be horrible. No, yeah. <laughs> if only the listeners could have been there. It was just revelating. Right, right. It was a revelation. You know, if we could have recorded it in, in good quality and sold it, we would have fixed safety forever. Uh. We are, we are just two rookie podcasters trying to make it in this world. <laughs> rookie is the best way to describe it. Jesus Christ. Right, so just to rehash over whole crowd, I'm sorry, but could you introduce yourself to us once more yeah. time? <laughs> Absolutely. My, my name is Sam Goodman. A lot of folks know me as The Hop Nerd. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm founder of The Hop Nerd Podcast, founder of Hop University. I'm also an author. I just recently wrote a book. Uh, that's called Safety Sucks. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a recovering safety practitioner uh, and human and organizational performance nerd slash consultant slash kind of all that stuff. So there was one thing that we wanted to to kind of touch on when we when we first recorded this about two minutes ago um, that, that you kind of don't refer to as you well you just did you referred to yourself as a recovering safety professional. So we'll, we'll kind of let, let, let's get into that first, actually. Why, why are you a recovering safety professional? What does that mean? 
Sure. I, I just, I really grown tired of the traditional approaches to safety. Um, I, for the longest time, I felt like I was really promoting things in which I didn't believe and I knew were not true. Um, I like to say that I was, I was forced to preach from a Bible in which I did not believe, mm. right? To, to preach from the Bible of zero and to preach from the Bible of the, the pyramid and, and all this kind of stuff that, uh, that most of us, if you, if you kind of tune into human and organizational performance or safety differently, uh, most of those folks will understand where I'm coming from with that. Um, but for the longest time, I felt like I, I, I was just tired of that, of, of, of the safety profession because I was, I was really driven into the ground with those approaches because I just knew that they didn't work. I just knew that they were ineffective. And I knew that ultimately they probably, not probably, they, they do, they do more harm than good. Uh, often, mm. uh, really to the point to where I was ready to walk away from the profession uh, until I discovered human and organizational performance. Um, so a lot of my, my mission in life is to, to change that, right? To, to really get beyond the recovery and safety profession and to really, really bring our profession into some of the modern age. Um, but currently I'm, I still consider myself a recovery and safety professional because I, I don't think that that's probably the norm uh, mm. in most uh, safety practitioners. No, I agree with you. I do think it's a bit of a rarity. Um, it's interesting. I want to kind of get into that um, hop safety one, safety two, safety differently kind of discussion in a minute. Um, sure. Is that that kind of frustration that you that you just described? Is that what led you to the podcast? That kind of like your main driver? Yeah. So some of it for sure, for sure. Um, a big piece of it was that. Uh, I mean, there's just no other way to put it. Let's just say that most safety podcasts are super boring. <laughs> right, they're, they're extremely boring, right? It's and I'm, I'm look, I'm not, I'm not picking on. Uh, I guess I am a little bit. I, I, I say I'm not picking on people, but I guess I do a little bit. Um, you know, so, some of that more traditional style uh, safety crowd. Um, you know, there's podcasts that that reflect that. There's a lot of podcasts that reflect that. That's you know, well, you need to do X, Y, Z if you want to be a compliant with ABC. Mm. That's the that's the podcast in its entirety. And I'm trying to drive, and I don't want to wreck. You know, because I'm going to get to sleep listening to this stuff. <laughs> so the, the, the the vast majority of podcasts that I found myself listening to were not safety related. Right. I've, you know, there, there's, there was a handful that were amazing, right? There's a handful of amazing kind of safety podcasts out there that I would tune into. And then when those were over, I'd be like, okay, what do I listen to now? I guess it's, it's back to listening to something about paranormal stories or something else weird or wacky, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> and it kind of drove me into that space because I, I felt that felt that there was a lot, a lot, a lot to be desired around safety podcasts in general. Uh, it's back to the piece that is boring. A lot of them were not entertaining. A lot of them were just not enjoyable to listen to. And all that's important. If you really want to spread a message, it has to be entertaining. It has to be enjoyable. Mm. It has to be something that's, that's not starchy and bland and just kind of, I felt like with a lot of these, when I listened to them, I felt like I was still at work. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's not what I, what I want in the, kind of, you know, afternoon hours. Um, but yeah, that, that led me to that. And, and so that was a big piece of it. And then obviously, as we mentioned, um, just, the the my beef with a lot of the traditional approaches to safety i, I wanted to uh, to vent i guess a little bit and share some of that frustration uh and the interesting part uh is that as i did that i found that there's a lot of people that share those same frustrations mm. which i thought was thought was really interesting there's so much similar like it's literally honestly it's like the american version of my journey like 100 cool. <laughs> percent. It's, it's so true like when I, I started this podcast out of pure frustration like if anyone asked me like what, why did you start? It's like, because I was so frustrated with the industry and, and, and I would, I would hold my hands up to say, I didn't have at that time that much of an insight into the things that I have an insight to now, like 
the, the podcast has done so much good for me, like talking to people like Ron Gant, who just opened my eyes to kind of safety differently and stuff like that. And then from there, oh, Ron's an absolute legend, if I'm honest. Like, I don't know if you've been on his calls he's been doing through uh, the coronavirus stuff, but it's just yeah. been great. Absolutely great. Yeah. But it's amazing because you, you get you get the folks that, and I don't mean to to deter you too much, but you get the folks that are like like the Rons and the Todd Conklins and the Sydney Deckers and mm. the Dave Provins and all, all these folks that are really the massive thought leaders in this space. Mm. And that's why I call myself a nerd is because I feel I, I truly am I'm a student of those people. Yeah. So it's it's really tuning in and listening to those folks because they are just brilliant. They're absolutely mm. amazing. I don't think they realize how amazing they are sometimes mm. <laughs> the, as, as they speak. But yeah, they are. Awesome. I love as well. I just want to throw in a huge shout out and plug to those guys. Because because they are amazing. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, you know, the last couple of weeks, I've I've said a lot about um, David and Drew's podcast, the safety of work, because I love. I think they have so well um, spotted a gap in the market as to people like me, especially. This what resonates with me so much is I hate reading those massive research articles. I can't stand it. So I just don't do it, if I'm honest. Like I have to. It's a chore for me to read that stuff. So them getting it, reading it, critiquing it, adding their own opinions on a podcast, beautiful. What a great well, idea! I think, I think, I think what's so amazing and brilliant about. So you mentioned Drew Ray, Dave Proven. Um, I just had the opportunity to speak with Sydney Decker on the podcast. Just a little yeah, bit. listen to um, it. All of those folks. I think what's so amazing with them, and because most safety practitioners out there, it's uh, just level. They struggle with academics. Mm. struggle with the academic type sometimes right um the deckers the the the, the provens the rays of the world they can sit down and and translate this stuff so well to where anyone in an organization any safety practitioner at any level no matter their education level no matter where they're at can understand and tune in and listen and i think you're exactly right i think it's just a, tell, a testament to how brilliant they actually are they mm. can take that information and turn it into something useful for the end safety practitioner and i, I love the safety work podcast i think it's amazing yeah it's a great podcast i love it i'll link it in the description for anyone that wants to who if they haven't already found it then they've been living under a rock for the last couple yeah, of months absolutely, absolutely yeah but it's outstanding i think they've taken the kind of world by storm for with that po or the podcast world anyway by by storm because there's just nothing like it it's a great a great idea ha shout out to them anyway we'll, we'll stop being fanboys now um but no i just love everything it's, it's funny like it's i was talking to my wife about you the other day and um and i was saying there's this guy who's kind of shot onto my radar from america who's got this hot nerd podcast and she was all right and i said he's coming on the podcast she was like, all right okay i said just wrote a book she said all right I said, yeah he called it safety sucks and she was like oh that's very similar to what you thought you wanted to call your book and i was like yeah it is very similar to what i wanted to call my book and i was like honestly the more and more i listen to this guy he's like the honestly it's just exact same version of me like like you say sometimes it's about venting i i don't just have um you know people on for interviews similarly to yourself in the beginning it was actually quite difficult for me to get people to come on you know only had a handful of episodes and i don't know whether um kind of being part of that safety fm bracket that you're under maybe that helped but we don't have that luxury over here we don't we don't collaborate in britain we don't like to talk to each other <laughs> over here um so for me the first 20 probably if more if not more episodes were just me 
venting like proper ranting i think i've even had a couple of glasses of rum on one episode where i just got a bit yeah, drunk yeah. and moaned about yeah. an iosh article or something like that i love that <laughs> do you find it quite cathartic when you're doing it those episodes you're just uh, talking through something yourself i do i do so and I, th- I think it's that because i think what's nice um you know having the guests on is amazing it's amazing mm-hmm. and 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 we've kind of said that but i mean you have those folks on and you could learn so much yeah um i just i just think back to the guests um uh, obviously sydney decker uh, but there's other folks um i mean every person that i've had on my on my podcast i'll walk away i'll, I'll walk away feeling like i've learned something from mm. Um, and I've had some more traditional safety folks on, not not as many. I don't attract them as much. They kind of yeah. throw rocks at me because I talk about zero. In a bad way. <laughs> but 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 you know, I walk away learning from them. But even more so, I think, is that you know those kind of early episodes. And I'm, I'm even getting to a place where I think I'm going to kind of go back to doing a little bit more of that mm. because I've, I've kind of went the opposite direction and done just interviews. Um, it's very useful to me personally because I get to explore some ideas, just verbalize them, put them out into, out into the world uh, and just kind of talk myself through things. Uh, and it is very cathartic, but it, it's, it's almost like an exercise in self-learning. It's amazing mm. because you, you kind of work your way through some of these concepts and I'm, I'm very much, I'm very similar. I don't, I don't like to, uh, I don't like to edit. Number one, I'm lazy. Number, yeah. number two, number two, I think it just sounds better when it's conversational, right? Even if it's yeah. just me. So even if I'm working through something, I go, oh, well, that's dumb. I shouldn't say that. And I'll just leave it in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that, that's, that's so much of what I like to encourage people to do uh, with, you know, we're kind of talking in a little bit of the hop space or safety differently space. Um, you do run into some of those folks that aren't so uh, open-minded mm. to new approaches. And there's a lot of reasons why. Um, but often I'll just kind of drop to some of those ideas with them and let them chew on them, work them out on their own. And they usually come to the same conclusions that or similar conclusions that, that most normal sane people would. And I think it's very similar to that. You know, when, when I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm working through an idea, even if it's just me talking into this microphone on the podcast, mm. um, it lets me work through it on my own. So yeah, I, I think it's awesome. It is very cathartic. It is very amazing to get to vent and mine were very similar. I'm like, this, you know, <laughs> just yeah, totally. scream and yell. And I, I contain myself a little bit, but not too much. Right. <laughs> no, that's such a, I'm, I, do you know what? Honestly, everything you're saying is like exactly the same. It's like people come on on on, on my podcast and they're like, and and you get I don't know about you, but you get different types of guests. Some that want a script, they want you like to to 100% have it scripted, and I'm just like, you're on the wrong podcast, mate. I don't do scripts. Right. Right. So so we started like producing like a content guide which is like five or six bullet points and we normally send it to people it's got some terms and conditions on as well so that it kind of covers those legal crappy stuff that no one really cares about but it it does seem to calm some people down but some people it just doesn't matter like i didn't send anything to you because i just knew it would be easy that if we just press record said hello we'll have a chat and it will be a good conversation but leaving those bits in, yeah, knocking over. Me and Jay Allen spoke about this when I was on the Jay Allen show. It was like mm-hmm. knocking a glass or something like that. It just, I think, it makes the audience feel a bit like they're a fly on the wall, and and they're yeah. part of the conversation. But I love it, and also I am lazy. Also, and editing is just hard work. <laughs> you, you, if you if you listen close enough for those that want to go back, you can listen through most of my podcasts, and you'll hear like a dog collar rattle. You hear like a dog <laughs> crawl under the desk, or you're, you're, you hear my daughter in the background screaming about something. Or <laughs> so it's totally. there. you just have to have to just kind of listen just a little bit. 
<laughs> I love it. What let, let, let's go back on track. Why why don't you give us an introduction into hot? Because I really want to have a chat about about quite a few things around hot that that that, that I seem some stuff has come out of, out of actually the calls that Ron's been doing. But why don't you just give us an introduction into hop and then we'll go from there. Sure. So if, if we want to get into a real, real kind of nuts and bolts definition of what hop is, it's really, it's really a cross between system design and psychology and how people fit into systems. Um, what that, what that relationship looks like. A lot of it has its roots back in old human factors uh, and obviously into human performance improvement. Um, a lot of how I describe that is hop is kind of the, the, the continued evolution of, of HPI or human performance uh, improvement. So the old kind of HP stuff and for, for my folks out there that have been around the nuclear industry or commercial nuclear generation, that's where I grew up in uh, as a safety professional. We were very familiar with human performance and we had we had human performance principles, we had all that kind of stuff, human performance tools, but it was still very much directed back at the end user. It was back at the field practitioner, right? And it was still pointed back to them as to kind of why things go wrong and if they try hard to be better. It was still kind of that normal song and dance with just a little bit of different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hop really was an evolution away from that, become more focused on kind of the organization, more focused on the system. Um, so that's really what hop is in a kind of a nuts and bolts sense. Uh, but it really to boil it down into to what it truly is, pop is really a shift in in thinking. It's a shift in mindset. It's a shift in underlying assumption around the way that we view the employee and the ways that we view human error. Um, in most traditional safety systems and traditional human performance, uh, we really view uh, the employee as a problem con- to control. We mm. believe that we create safety by constraining the worker, right? We, we constrain them through checklists. We constrain them through r- rules. Uh, we enforce those things with sticks and carrots, and we try to manage people that way. Mm. Uh, and hop really is a, a shift away from that into understanding that people aren't the problem to control. People are the solution to our problems. And we need to ask those people what they need. What, what do you need to be safe and productive? Uh, it's really that shift into the view on the worker. And we, we begin to see that that human error is really just a byproduct of human expertise and uh, human innovation. And it's normal and it's kind of boring. And we kind of get beyond this kind of need for blame and retribution and all this kind of other stuff that goes along with more of those traditional approaches. Um, but it's really that if we want to say one simple phrase to, to, to really to really boil that down is that people are not a problem to control their solution. So if I have to define hop, it would be by that by that phrase. Mm. People are not a problem to control. They're the solution to our problems. Mm. Do, you, do, you, do you think one of the biggest problems within that is, is trust? Like I, I find one of the biggest problems we have in the UK is a lack of trust for the worker. It's, it's quite interesting. You, you can employ someone because you deem them competent. And then the second that they get into work, you, you, you plow them with procedures because you don't trust them to work how you employed them to work. I think I think trust is a huge element of that. I think that most organizations start off from a place of mistrust rather than a place of trust. Mm, definitely, and I think that's what leads us down a lot of that path. And I'm, I don't I don't think that it's just organizations now. I think it probably goes to greater society right now in some some ways. We start off from a place of mistrust with of other people, and we really need to get into a place, uh, especially in our organizations and our companies, to where we start off from a, from a place of trusting our fellow human. Right? I trust you to do the right thing. Mostly where organizations are at now, though, is that I don't trust you i'm going to give you a checklist i'm going to give you rules i'm going to give you procedures because i can't trust what you're going to do behind my back Mm. and that's kind of dumb (laughs) that's kind of dumb for lack of a better way to put it i think you you really hit the nail on the head there is that we go through these extensive 
uh, and, and rigorous processes for hiring people to hire the best and the brightest people at most most organizations. Once we get our hands on them, we usually train them and we, we get them into our systems and we work very hard to make sure that they are the best of the best and they have all the knowledge and ability that need. What, what I think of here, uh, in, I'm, I'm in power generation. That's kind of my, my normal nine to five day job. I work around power generation. And I, I, think, of, I think of linemen as a really good example to folks that go out and climb climb power poles and work in those big bucket trucks and do all that stuff to keep keep power on and moving around, you know? Mm. And those folks go through years upon years of apprenticeship and become the best at what they do. And there's not much more of an extremely adaptive environment than, than that environment, right? Yeah. Working with something that, that kills you instantly, right? And you're doing it 40 foot up in the air on a pole, you know, strapped in by a belt. That's, that's pretty, pretty wild and crazy and adaptive, right? But most organizations, they take all of that education, all that training, and then once they actually get them on a the job, they say, no, here's your here's your 75-page procedure, and you just follow this, and everything will be okay. Uh, and if you don't, <laughs> then we're going to beat you and shame you and do kind of not-so-nice things to you. But here, just follow this. All that training, all that stuff's great. you got to have it. But this is this is what you really need to do is you need to follow this little book and everything will be okay. Yeah. And I just don't I just I just don't see how that ever works out well. And it, it usually doesn't, right? It usually doesn't work out well. Yeah. We've got um we've got evidence after evidence of it not working, haven't we? Is that kind of it, it's funny when we were talking sorry, my uh, screen's just decided to we're having a right technical nightmare in today's no. podcast, I tell you. My screen's just decided to just <laughs> just decided yeah. no i'm just gonna time myself out so i can hear you i don't but i can't see you anyway well that's, that's how you know it's meant to be is when all the things try to go wrong it's meant to be yeah so i'm i'm gonna move you on to my other screen that is working so if it looks like i'm not looking at you i actually am looking at you it's all good. The, the camera's here but your face is here it's extremely <laughs> annoying uh anyway um no, I, I agree. It's, it's funny, we were talking, when we had Ron Gant on the podcast God, months ago now, um, we were kind of talking about how it's, it's ironic in a way that we're trying to create robots for artificial intelligence that can think like humans, right, and have that freedom of thought and that kind of cognitive flexibility of problem solving, etc. But yet, we don't allow that with our actual humans in the workplace. It's, it's just so ironic, isn't it? Right, right, right. It's insane. It's insane because, you know, we forget that often that that's really what we're paying people to do. We're paying them to adapt. And that's a scary word mm. for organizations. We, we like to think that things are very linear as an organization. We like to think that, again, it's back to that procedure that we don't, we don't, we don't want you to adapt. Because you just follow this solid black line from A to, to B and you're done. Uh, and that's just not how life works. I mean, we obviously know that's not how life works, right? I mean, you, you kind of think about your normal day. Think think about the efforts that we put in just to try to make this podcast happen. Right? <laughs> We've had to adapt about a thousand times to, to make this work, right? If we would have just followed the procedure, we would, we would both be sitting here staring at black screens right now. Yeah, true. <laughs> it, just, it just wouldn't work. So we forget that. I think it is that. That's a very interesting point. I had not thought about that. That's pretty, pretty eye-opening. But um, it, it's a very, very valid point. Uh, but most organizations forget that, that we do pay people to figure out problems, to adapt mm. and overcome things. That's kind of the point. Mm. Um, one thing that I like to share with folks a lot is that, especially in and around the procedures, at some point, at some point, um, we moved away from, from seeing procedures as what they were actually intended to be. Procedures are supposed to be tools that help us accomplish work, right? Now, procedures are used as a tool to constrain the mm. work. 
right? And that, that's just a huge difference, right? If, if, I have a, if I have a procedure that, that gives me some information and says, hey, this is how we know that this works. And here's some kind of rumble strips or guardrails to kind of keep you, you know, inside of that. And here's some room to adapt. And here's three or four things that you probably don't want to do because it'll kill you. So here's some really good information for you. That's a pretty solid procedure, right? But most often it turns into this big, long kind of CYA kind of document of just, you know, so we try to roll everything into it, right, to where it's completely not useful. And then the, the worst part in an organization, and this happens regularly, is that after something not so great occurs, we're going to go back and we're going to excavate through that document and find where people messed up. Yeah. And then we're going to hold people to that document, all 175 pages of the whatever stupid procedure it is. They're right? <laughs> <laughs> so like, how could you have not known <laughs> that, mm. that on page 73 that it said not to do that? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but that that kind of that kind of mindset of human error, it's it's still there. That like we, we not so long ago was it? And I probably got the country wrong, but I'm sure Saudi Arabia were accused of shooting down that plane or something, wasn't it? A few months back, and and they kept, they went onto onto international news and was like, yeah, human error. And I and, and the first thing that came to my mind was that poor. Mil- that p- poor soldier, whatever we want to call him, that pressed the button, which everyone knows it was it was an order. No one's going to press a button like that in the military without an order right. to do that, without at least kind of rules of engagement of some sort, right? right. right? But yet we went human error. What, what do you mean human error? Like spilt his coffee and accidentally pressed a big red button that said shoot a public passenger airplane down. I just think the world's the world's not ready for this stuff, is it? Like we're still stuck in that human error mindset. Well, it it goes it goes to kind of that innate human need to vilify and have something to blame, right? It's it's easy, and we like it, and it's it feels good, and it's kind of all that stuff that makes it super seductive and attractive, right? Is that something bad happens, we can find a wrongdoer, Mm. and if we can find a wrongdoer, we can punish that wrongdoer. And it feels good to do that, right? It feels good to to extract that pound of flesh for someone that messed up, right? We do that. We see that. I mean, I don't. I don't want to get. Uh, I don't want to get too far off in the left field here, but we see that manifest in in our in our systems of criminal justice, right? Uh, and all the while, we have seventy and eighty percent recidivism rates, right? Yeah. Something's not working. That's kind of the pro tip there. But it's kind of that we try to apply that same logic, right? Because it just it just doesn't work very well. It feels really good, but it just doesn't work very well. Uh, we can seek out and we can find something where somebody messed up. And when we do, the real answer there should be, well, of course, mm. of course, somebody messed up. Mm. They're human. Right? Mm. You're going to find error. You're going to find. You're going to find where somebody broke the rules. You're going to find where somebody messed up with the communication. You're going to find all that stuff when there's a not so great thing happen. But here's the really interesting part: in all the places where there's success, you're going to find all the same stuff. Right? Mm. In successful work, you're going to find that people broke the rules and had a good outcome. You're going to find that people didn't follow the procedures and had a good outcome. You're going to find all of that stuff, right? So it's really moving beyond that view of human error, right? And understanding that human error is normal and it's present and both successful and not so successful work. And it's really the most boring part of anything that happens, whether it's success or failure. It's the most boring part because we're just just kind of scratching the surface, right? We're, we're just barely, barely scratching the surface. But for an organization, it's easy. And let's, let's just level. It's easy. Right. It's super easy. Mm. We can say, well, you know, uh, 
John Doe, and I apologize if there's any actual John Doe's out there, <laughs> John, John or Jane Doe messed up. Uh, it was their fault because they didn't pay enough attention. So now as an organization, we can just tell them to pay more attention. We can send out a, a flyer to the rest of the organization that tells everyone else to pay attention so they don't end up like them. And we're done. Hmm. We're done with it. We don't actually have to turn that mirror on the organization to say, how did we help this outcome occur? How, where are our flaws? Where are our latent organizational weaknesses? Where are the things flawed within our systems? Uh, and it's a big shift because for so long, safety, especially over the past 10, 15, 20 years, safety has been very focused on kind of the behavior, right? We had kind of this rash of behavioralists that kind of came in and said, well, if you just focus on the at risk and the safe and you discourage the at risk and you, 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 you work on, you know, recording the safe, if you give them the stick for the at risk and you dangle the carrot in front of them to make them safe, then we can finally just fix people because we can just get rid of the behavior. Nothing bad will ever, ever happen. But we forget that that behavior comes from the system, right? The system is giving us the behaviors that it's designed to give us. Mm. Right. Uh, and so I think it's, I think it's a really interesting piece to understand how all that stuff kind of works together. But I think it all starts here. And, and I, I share this with people constantly. Um, I talk to a lot of organizations. I talk to a lot of people about this kind of first step of how do you go down the road of human and organizational performance or safety differently. Uh, and it circles back to this. It's back to the human error piece. It's back to the views of the human, right? It's back to the underlying assumption. Uh, and, and it's that. It's the underlying assumption of what, how does your organization, how do the folks within your organization view human error? Do they view it as a choice or do they view it as normal and boring, right? Mm. Once you get to normal and boring, you can kind of move into kind of more enlightened approaches to safety. There's something interesting you said that, which actually is, is something that, really dominating my brain at the moment it's this tribal effect that we currently have in the industry between what some might call safety two and safety one so safety right. two being a collective of people that support wholly the safety differently safety two hop all of these move movements if you want to call them that right. granted the argument could be made, you know, hop's been around for a long time. Like you were saying, it comes from that kind of human factors piece. I don't deny any of that stuff, right? But what, so I refer to them as, just for the sake of this argument, new systems, right? So one of my, so my stance on this stuff is I genuinely actually do agree with some of this, the arguments that some of the safety one community would say in that nothing really new has come from all of these systems now i do think each system brings something new every time and i do think that from each system we evolve and we learn every time somebody like decker or eric or or todd writes a new book we learn something or somebody else comes onto the scene and writes another book we learn something else or we see it in a different perspective which is always good right but the interesting point is that another gentleman that does that used to do a podcast in the uk that he's actually just restarted. His name's Sonny Gopal, and he actually interviewed over about six episodes um, Professor Scott Geller, who's a huge behavioral-based safety, kind of like the godfather of behavioral-based safety, right? Um, you've written a book, Applied Psychology and Safety, and all stuff like that. And it was interesting, something he said in there, is that, he, that when he kind of did the original work around behavioral-based safety, his look on it was 
you have to understand that it's the environment that a person is in that defines the behaviors that you see, right? And and do you know what that exactly sounds like to me? Is the context defines the behaviors, like which is pretty much exactly the same as what the safety two world talk about. So actually, I I, I don't think, and I'd be interested to get your point on this. This this divide between safety one and safety two. Is, is not actually the system that's the problem. It was how the people themselves implemented the system. Right. So in theory, BBS works, safety two works, safety differently works, hot works. If you want to treat them like separate systems, then then whatever, fucking treat them like that. I, don't, I really don't care. Right. But but and so so brings me to my point that the post I put on LinkedIn was that we we call in the safety two world the safety um, the work of safety is your your paperwork your, your your kind of your systems your procedures that's the work of safety that's what we do all the time and my argument was the fact we're arguing about all these different systems that's actually now becoming the new safety of work is us just fighting with each other. And it's, it's yeah. taking away from the value of all of these systems. But, but it'd be interesting to see what your opinion is on that kind of divide. Uh, and, 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 and probably, yeah, what I just said. But what do you think? So, I'll, yeah, there's, there's, there's a, there's a, lot, there's a lot there. there. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me start with this. Is that I, I won't, I'll, I'll say that I think that some of the divide is good. Mm, okay. I say that because I, I believe that I believe that dissenting voices are good, right? I, I believe that I believe that having some folks with opposing ideas kind of mm. hashing those out and arguing those out is, is a really good thing. Yeah, I totally I agree, agree with you to the point that I think that the divide has gotten so bad that we can't even communicate a lot of time. So I, 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 I agree with that as well because uh, I'm sure you run into it on LinkedIn all the time. Um, I know I do. If I post anything about you know. I, I beat up zero a lot, right? Let's just, maybe for anybody that follows along with me, they'll see that. I, I don't like this notion of zero um, for good reason, right? Mm -hmm. we can dive into that later if we want to. Um, but I, I beat that up and there's a really big crowd of zero enthusiasts out there that would just completely, just because you say, I don't agree with zero, that's it, I'm not talking to you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, that's, that's the point that we, that we cross to where it's like, okay, this isn't useful anymore. Right. If I can throw out a concept and say, this is why I think here's the flaws with pr 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 with promoting this zero based safety ideology. And then we can have a conversation. That's one thing. But when it turns into just this, I'm on this, I'm in this tribe, you're in that tribe and we hate each other. Mm. Uh, it's not useful anymore. It's, it's not useful to progress. At the end of the day, no matter what we want to call anything, um, even even in this space, we have arguments around well, no, that's safety too. No, that's hop. No, that's safety differently. No, that's new. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, for sure. Yeah. They're all a little different, right? They're all a little different, but at their heart, they all kind of have the same thing. So I, I, yeah. totally, I totally agree with you. It's there's this, there's this human need to, to, of tribalism. It seems like right now, I agree. kind of want to be in this thing and this is my team and this is good. And this is the only right thing. And it, it's kind of back to what's similar to what we're talking about with human error. It feels good to be on a team and think that I'm the only one that's right or we're the only ones that are right. Mm. And it's dumb and it's not effective, right? It's not useful. Um, so really I think, I think it's that having the arguments, putting all that dissent out in the open, having those conversations are great when they're conversations. Yeah. Actually keep them useful and productive. I think it's very good. You know, some of these long kind of back and forth and comments are wonderful. You know, mm. And you read this stuff in LinkedIn where it's like, no, I don't agree because, and it's, they basically write a paper, you know, in the comments. And I think it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have those conversations. It's wonderful to work through that stuff. Well, that's um, the beauty of LinkkedIn, isn't it? Absolutely.
Yeah. But it's, it's, it becomes completely useless when it gets into you hurt my feelings or I don't like this because mm. I personally feel this way and I like this and this is my tribe. It's just, it's just, it's just not, uh, again, it's just not useful at that point. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot, uh, th- there's a lot going on there. Uh, to kind of jump into a little bit of your stuff with Scott, um, I, would, I would be lying if I said I don't have some Scott Geller books laying around here. You know, mm. um, Scott, Scott's a Virginia Tech guy. I grew up in Virginia. Right. So I'm, I'm, I like Scott. I think Scott's got some really good ideas and I, I agree with him on, on a lot of stuff that I think that uh, kind of original BBS was bastardized as it was rolled into organizations. I think that there was a lot of snake oil salesmen that went out and kind of sold these. That's exactly uh, what he said, actually, in that interview. Yeah. He said, that I'm, I'm, I, can, I can remember because it's one of my that if i ever got the you know to be honest i've never approached him and one day i should approach him about i'd love to have a chat with him but one of my criticisms to him would be is is in that interview he says i'm an academic i'm a researcher i'm a psychologist so i created a a theory for people to take away and, and he said it's not my fault the consultant sold it as carrot and stick and i was like mm, okay that's a fair enough point but it, it's that's a cop out as far as I'm concerned. If I created yeah. something and they were and people were interpreting it not in the way that I thought they should, I would be fighting tooth and nail to be like, no, Sam, right. you've got it wrong. This is what I meant. Do you know what I mean? Well, exactly, and and that's that's the problem because because in this situation, uh, I feel like I feel like someone like a Scott could be really. Um, kind of a unifier in this situation yeah and start to kind of understand that hey we're not so different we probably disagree on some stuff and i, th- I think he does that in some some fashions there's yeah. a really wonderful um kind of town hall meeting between between him and todd conklin some other folks out there if anybody wants to check that you can google it you can find it. it's pretty pretty good discussion to kind of hear some of the differences and hear them kind of work that out in real time it's just kind of back to the productive conversation yeah um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I, th- I think that there was a lot of of kind of BBS that was bastardized and kind of sold as quick fixes to organizations, uh, and say and and look, uh, not, I'll, I'll come back. I, don't, I just don't want to forget this point. We're starting to see that manifest in and around some safety differently stuff now too. Um, for those that are familiar with safety differently, they're going to understand what I mean when I say just culture. Mm-hmm. Right? We're starting to see consultants that are selling just culture kind of programs. Uh, of these kind of these disciplinary action charts based off of different behaviors. And if you do this, then they get this size of stick. And if they do mm-hmm. that, they get this size of stick. And if they do this, if it's willful, then it's this. And if it's at risk, then it's that. And it's kind of the same thing. People are starting to kind of bastardize the concept of mm-hmm. culture in kind of the similar same ways. Um, so you, you see that manifest because organizations want easy and consultants want money. And that's a really, really easy way for both of them to get those things, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that I think that there's a lot to be said there um, around kind of behavior-based safety because what I talk about mostly, and I get in trouble, right? I, I'm, I'm a little polarizing sometimes. I, I, I get in trouble because the the the, the viewpoint, uh, and kind of to your point about about some of the stuff with Scott, is that to I speak to the viewpoints in, in which behavior-based safety commonly manifests in organizations. Yeah. I don't speak to it from the point of, of this kind of imaginary land of perfect behavior-based safety implementation. Mm. Right? I speak to it of how it commonly manifests in organizations. The reality, right? It's mm. the same thing with the pyramid. People get mad at me all the time for beating up the Heinrich pyramid, right? Um, but it's the same thing. I, I get that it was much deeper probably on Heinrich's level, but the way that it has manifested in their organizations is that, well, if you just get rid of this and you don't have that, right? And mm. it's, it's, we, we've kind of been very reductive with it and made it oversimplified it. 
So I speak to what the reality is, not to what we hoped that it would have been, right? So I think it's very important to understand that most behavior-based safety programs are sticks and carrots, right? Yeah. If you go into most organizations, the vast majority of organizations, a standard behavior-based pro safety program just means, it simply means this. It means that we have an observation card, we go out and do observations that are either say that people are good or people are bad. We stop there, we scan those cards in, or we put those cards into a system and we trend those. And then we use that kind of wacky wonky trending <laughs> to tell us where we're going to invest all of our time. And it fails miserably constantly. Right? <laughs> that's all. That's ultimately what that means in most situations. So mm. yes, I, I agree. I, th I think Scott is spot on on some things. Yeah. The only thing that, uh, and it, it, again, it, it is that I think that that is interesting to hear that because that's one of the bigger beefs that you that, that you see with behavior-based safety programs in organizations uh, is that most behavior-based safety programs view behavior as an input hmm. right and in hop we really view behavior as an output yeah right the system is producing the behavior yeah right? result, you're, all, you're yeah. always going you're always going to have assholes mm -hmm. right and I, this is this is how I, I, I tell leaders this exact same thing you're always going to have assholes you're always going to have folks that 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 you're going to have those folks every now and again that maliciously do things, right? Mm. But that's so rare. That's so mm. rare. And that's completely outside of our wheelhouse, right? So most of those behaviors are not choice, right? It's not that we're going out and choosing to amputate a finger. We're not choosing to die at work, right? And I think that's probably the shift between kind of hop and kind of at least the, 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 uh, the implemented version of behavior-based safety, the bastardized version of behavior-based safety that we mm. see manifest in most organizations is that we stop at behavior, right? With most BBS stuff, we stop there and say, well, if we can finally just fix all the behaviors that are wrong, <laughs> nothing bad will happen, right? If we can finally just get people to stop making mistakes, if we can just observe people enough, trend it enough and put out enough little fancy charts and graphs, then we'll eventually be able to predict when things are going to go wrong and we'll eventually be able to stop things from going wrong. Mm -hmm. and if we can see those behaviors start to go down, that means we're doing really, really good. Mm -hmm. Organizations love it because it's easy. They can, they can, it's a, it's a numbers thing and organizations love numbers. It's an easy Tiny thing to measure. It's an yeah. easy, right. It's an easy thing to incentivize. It's an easy way to beat leaders and say, you're not a good leader because you didn't do enough observations, mm -hmm. right? It's an easy way to do all that stuff. So absolutely, absolutely agree. But I think that, um, I think that it's a really good opportunity for someone like a Scott Geller to come out and say, that's BS. That is, that is not what I meant. That is not what we wanted to see. <laughs> right? mm. I think there'd be a really great opportunity because Scott is, is, has some wonderful work out there. I don't, I'm not going to argue yeah. that a bit. Um, uh, I just, I think it's this, and I know I'm kind of rambling here a little bit, but BBS. No, it's good stuff. It gets me, it gets, it gets me a little hot under the collar. Kind of, kind of works. Um, but I love this quote by Conklin is that most behavior-based safety programs, we try to change human behavior by actively going out and asking people to change their behavior. Hmm. And that seems like a really stupid way to try to change behavior. <laughs> if you want to change behavior, you need to dig into where the behavior comes from. Yeah. Right. So a lot, a lot of what I've been exploring um, is how those things might be able to work together because I don't think that observation cards are inherently bad. I don't think that behavior-based safety is, is inherently bad. Mm. I just think we, you know, I, I think that they're tools. Uh, and as with anything, if you, if, you, if you take that tool and you put it into a system in which we view people as bad and we don't trust people and we view error as a choice, then of course we're going to get the result that we get. Mm. 
right? It's so it's no different than Hop. If you take those same Hop principles and embed them into an organization, but their underlying assumptions of the organization still believe that human error is a choice and that people are bad, you're still not going to end up with anything good. Mm. So I think it's it's driving deeper. And again, a, a lot of what I'm looking at now is how those things have the potential to work together. How you might be able to go out and look at a behavior and understand that that behavior comes from somewhere and not stop there and try to dig into the system and try to understand where that behavior is coming from. That seems like something that might be valuable, way more valuable than kind of a, you know, a bean count of observation. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a shameless sponsorship clip. In all seriousness, guys, we partnered up with DRM Group. You know David McLean, he's been on the podcast time and time again. We absolutely support his message and he's got a brand new online course to help you. I'm going to let him tell you all about it now. The brain can be trained to think and behave differently, to think in more positive and optimistic ways. And there are steps that you can take to train your brain to feel good for good. And we call this lasting positive change. Through our 16-day program, which includes daily videos and action sheets, taking you no longer than 15 minutes to complete a day, you will learn how to move away from thoughts of anger, hopelessness and frustration to a place of mental well-being and positivity. Okay, guys, so if you're interested, you can click the link below and get a discount, special rebranded safety discount, full disclosure. We get a little bit kickback from that. So at the same time as improving your mental health, you can support your favorite health and safety podcast YouTube channel. I'll let you get back into the content. Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've had conversations where people talk about like those kind of carrot and stick systems and incentivizing right. and stuff like that. And and I always use the example of my dog um, and say, you know, when I've got a treat in my hand, my dog is so good, like so good. It doesn't fix the behavior. As soon as that treat's gone, he still wants to run over to that other dog. He still, he still wants to do that stuff, but it's like, it's creating. So, so for me as an owner, if I don't, if I'm not prepared to deal with that, I need to avoid that environment because that environment defines his behavior. So when we, in the UK, we've got this massive compliance culture. We're all stuck in this, which in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, some people can do compliance very well, but in my opinion, compliance is the bare minimum. It's very kind of socialist. It's like we wait to the government to tell us what to do. You know, the big man at the top is going to tell us what to do, man or woman. Um, and 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 that for me is just like it's it's a it's a loss of potential do you not think like if we start to look at like that it doesn't matter what you want to call it but because you're the hop nerd we'll, we'll refer to it as hop but like you say there's a lot of similarities in these systems um but there, there's a potential to be more than just safe in these kind of new new systems it's it's like it's not just safety it's just we're actually being better businesses. You're inevitably going to start to see improvements in efficiency, in quality, and everything else because they just kind of work together. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Well, mm. I think that's something that's interesting as 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 organizations kind of go down this path of of um, kind of new and different safety approaches. Uh, they start to realize very quickly that safety it, it often is the catalyst. You know, that starts them down this path but they quickly realize that these concepts apply throughout their organization, mm. right? They quickly begin to realize that like, this is valuable, yeah. you know? And then they st it, it gets back to this is that it's, we get on this path because we start to understand that we need to treat people like people, <laughs> right? We need to understand that people are people and we need to treat them like people because it's the right thing to do. We have to start at the right spot and that's probably the right spot is understanding that we need to, to treat our fellow humans with dignity and respect 
uh, even if they work for us, right? Yeah. <laughs> even if they're an employee, we need to treat them with some dignity and respect, right? And I totally agree. I think that's a really interesting place because um, here stateside, it's been very similar for a very long time is that we're very compliance driven. Unfortunately, we're almost more compliance driven to insurance organizations yeah. <laughs> than we are to the actual government. But that's, that's the reason why we do most things. We do most things in organizations around safety, around the safety space, not because it's the right thing to do and not because we need to take care of people. We do it to protect ourselves from litigation. Mm. And we do it to protect ourselves from the government and from the insurance organizations. We do it to protect ourselves in those situations. And I, I totally understand that risk management side. That's the unfortunate part of what we live in, you know, in, in today's modern societies. We're very litigious with just, and the governments love to come down on the evil employers too, right? When bad things happen. So again, the, the setting drives behavior. So kind of the larger setting, the grander stage here is driving the behaviors of organizations as well, right? It kind of has a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. But we have to get back to why we want to do these things, why we need to get down these, these different roads. And it should be that, is that we want to treat people with dignity and respect, and we want to do safety because it's the right thing to do, right? It's, it has to start from, from, from that, that, that right spot. Mm -hmm. We're not starting in the right position, and I don't think we're going to end up where we want to go. We're not starting in the right direction. Yeah. It's interesting because um, I've, I've used this example many a times in, in this podcast and training, but I've, been, I've worked quite a lot over the last couple of years in the fire um, industry and well, not in the fire industry, but, but fire has kind of been a massive part of my role um, sure. within the NHS and within um, housing organizations, et cetera. And, and obviously we had, Grenfell, we had a huge, huge fire, um, which I think, to be honest, any most people that most people that are fire risk or good fire risk assessors or, or you know, compartmentation engineers, whatever you want to call them, fire engineers, mm -hmm. would probably not have been able to predict that particular problem. But I think everyone would have said, "We've got a big fire coming soon." Like we haven't had a big fire for a while. We we saw a lot of problems, and it's. But anyway, to get to my point. It's interesting that um, as a result of that, there was a lot of conferences and a lot of like big groups of people going to listen to people from the NFCC over here, which is the National Fire Chiefs Council, um, which is essentially like it's, it's the, the, the kind of body that looks after the enforcer from a fire point of view over here. Right. So a lot of their guidance would be, you know, the cream of the crop essentially is what you would you would think that is you know the reg the regular they can't get my words out the regulator's yeah. advice yeah. so i went to this conference and um and they, these people were getting up and they were bashing a lady called dame judith hackett who wrote the hackett report um which is basically looking into how we can use this to learn straight away and, and implement right. some things and she didn't include sprinklers on there right and she didn't include a guidance to the governments to say, make sprinklers mandatory, make it legislation that they have to be in buildings. She didn't do that. She got absolutely roasted for it. Like the, the chief of the NFCC was at this conference destroying her, being like, it's disgusting. She didn't include that. And then when we came to like the Q&A sessions throughout the whole day, so many people putting their hands up. These are these are people that work in the housing associations. Oh, why didn't she include sprinklers? Should we do sprinklers? Should we do this? And I come with a question at the end. I don't know whether I was just feeling particularly cocky or, or arrogant that day, but 
I was like, I've got a question more for the room as opposed to the panel. But if everybody in this room agrees, which I think they do, that sprinklers would make them feel more comfortable in in a ma- in a point that they've managed the risk of their property, why are they not just doing it? Right. What, like, if, if your your kind of legal responsibility is to risk assess, which is to assess the risk and implement something in your opinion at the business which you deem reasonable and practicable. Therefore, right. based on our conversations, that's sprinklers. So just do it. Right. 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 What's the problem? I think it's really interesting. I think it's really interesting because it, it's still back to that kind of compliance thing, right? It's most organizations have kind of viewed this thing as compliance is king. Mm. If you just comply, everything will be fine. Right. And we, we ended up in this weird kind of loop of, okay, well that didn't work. We just need to do it harder. Right? <laughs> well, that didn't work. We just need to do it harder. Right. And then uh, all the meantime, we're kind of in this loop of compliance and trying to comply better and harder. And we keep killing people, right? We keep killing people at a pretty, pretty, I'm really kind of moving up. At least mm. your state side, we seem to be killing more people <laughs> as we <laughs> kind of continue, right? Which is super unfortunate, but it's that. It's that that we really focus on kind of this kind of really compliance thing when really um, a more, uh, probably a better approach. Uh, let's, well, let's just say this compliance with anything, right? Let's, let's call out procedures. Let's call out uh, here states. I will call out OSHA, right? We'll call out any of these kind of documents that say this is the one right way to do things. And I'll just let that sink in for a second. The one right way to do things. <laughs> and that's probably just not true, mm. right? There's probably not the right way to do most things, right? There's probably some better and probably some not so great, right? Mm. But it's, we're start, if we start from a different place and understand that there's probably not one right way to do things, if we leave that kind of open and say, kind of to your point about, about looking at risk and managing risk and say, here, this is what, this is the, this is the end state that we want you to achieve. And I'm speaking from a regulator's point of view, mm-hmm. or even maybe an organization, a procedure. Here's the end state that we want you to achieve. Here's some, some kind of guardrails in between to let you know, you know, some little safeties to kind of keep you from getting too far out in the left field. Um, but everything else, Let's see what you come up with. Make it performance-based, right? Let organizations become those, and, and really throughout industries, let, let them become these little, little uh, really uh, laboratories of micro-invention and micro-experimentation. And you, I think would be amazed with what we come up with if you let organizations actually innovate, mm-hmm. right? If you let organizations actually go out and figure things out, it's going to be a much better result than this is what you're going to do. Right. And again, we, we see that uh, I'm kind of speaking on a grander scale, but even within our own organizations, we don't do that. Right. Most organizations don't like that. We want everything to be the same. Right. Uh, most larger organizations have multiple business units, multiple locations, multiple facilities, and they're all extremely unique and have their own personalities. They're all extremely unique and have their own challenges. But at the end of the day, we want to take one set of rules and apply it to all of them and say they shall all be the same. <laughs> and it never works out really well. Mm. Right. So it's kind of back to that. Let them you know, embrace their uniqueness and allow them to go out and experiment and figure things out. And when we do, we would be amazed. I've seen this in organizations. It's amazing to see what organizations come up with. Um, I can speak to it a little bit with kind of more of a modern kind of hot topic of today, obviously with everything that's going on with COVID-19. Um, we kind of, adaptability was forced, right? It was yeah. forced for most organizations. And most large organizations with multiple locations, it was forced that they not have kind of the death grip over everything going on many locations, many folks that I speak to, um, you know, things have just, they've kind of went out and figured stuff out on their own 
and they've come up with some really amazing and cool things. Mm. I think there's a lot to be said about, again, it's, it's probably back to trust, about trusting the folks in your organization enough to allow them to figure things out on their own. Mm. To trusting folks enough to let them go out, do their micro experiments, ask people what they need, try stuff out and see if it works. I think there's a lot to be said about that. There's, there's, a, there's a huge amount to be said about that because that's ultimately how we're probably going to grow, mm. right? We've been talking about the differences in like hop and behavior-based safety and safety differently and all this kind of stuff. At the end of the day, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really more of an evangelist for betterment. I just want better, mm. right? How we achieve better, it probably doesn't really matter that much to me, to be honest yeah. with you. I know I'm the hop nerd. I probably shouldn't say that. But <laughs> if it's better and it's better for people, that's what I want. Mm. Right? And how we get there, I think that's how we get there. We have to ask people what they need. We have to experiment. We have to innovate. We have to get away from this mindset that compliance is everything. We have to get away from this mindset of, oh, crap, this happened. What should we do? I don't know. Let's go ask the rest of our, or the other organizations that do the same work that we do and let them tell us what to do. <laughs> we have to get away from this mindset, this lockstep with our industries and lockstep with regulators. And we have to be able to get out and actually, uh, again, it's, it's experiment. It's taking risk. Risk is not always mm -hmm. a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. we've, we've, we've become very, very uh, risk adverse. We, we want to avoid risk completely when really what we want our employees to be and what our organization should be in general is really risk adaptive. Mm. Right? We oh, like see that. risk and understand it and figure that out and adapt through the risk instead of going, oh my God, risk and then run away because nothing ever actually happens. Then <laughs> We don't actually get anything done. Yeah. That, that resonates with that kind of re resilience kind of argument is is very similar to that. But I like, I like the way you describe that kind of risk adaptive that's nice and and it's interesting as well because we've we've got um on on, on our podcast we haven't put it out yet but we've got an episode recorded with um uh, a lady called dominique and she's uh she's kind of the health and safety manager for the royal opera house in london um and and she wrote she had an article in in our kind of uh you know like professional membership iosh over here and um they, they did an article where basically really long story short but they 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 had some civil litigation um, against brought against them from an employer who was from an employee sorry who was a musician in the pits who'd had hearing hearing damage as a result of rehearsing. Um, they've never had that before. This was pretty much unprecedented. You know, it, it, hearing loss was pretty much a given, or hearing damage at least was pretty much a given for musicians in the area. And and the the civil court kind of went through the motions and they said right all musicians wear hearing protection in the orchestra pit because it was over the, the upper uh, exposure limits for the, the noise at work regulations. Therefore, you must wear hearing protection. And pretty much the whole industry just went, nah, not going to happen. Long story right. short, I, I, I haven't trained to, to play music with hearing protection, so I, I can't do it. The hearing protection industry itself wasn't ready for the demands that the musicians were needing like 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 different hearing protection for different in instruments in different locations as to where they were etc and anyway the whole kind of thing was just fascinating and and the root cause of it as i asked her a very simple question when i interviewed her was well so did was was the legislation okay for you did it did it work for you did compliance work for you is so in essence what i'm asking is 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 the law up to date or out of date and, and she, to be fair to her, she did say, you know, this is not the opinion of the Royal Opera House. This is the opinion of her herself. But the legislation was out of date and it didn't suit her. 
Are you right, mate? You look a bit like something's gone wrong. How about now? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, I don't, I don't know what happened. I just completely dropped it. It just did not recognize my microphone anymore. There is something going on with this podcast, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. I, I've just tried to... Awesome. It's, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just too damn good. Can't take it. Zoom's like, there's too much intelligence in this call. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't know what happened. If for some reason it just it Zoom booted my uh, booted my focus right, it just popped up and said your your audio your mic is no longer recognized. I'm like, I've the? never seen that before. Interesting. That's weird. I just tried to fix my screen whilst you're out, and it's like, nope. There we go. I'm just not going to work. So, like, <laughs> what is going on? What anyway, heck, man? I started out this morning with zero internet. So for some reason, I'm I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. For some reason, uh, and I don't get this. Phoenix is a pretty large business hub, right? Yeah, the entire internet in kind of we call it the valley. The valley here has been like dead for the past oh, really? three days. It's just been spotty. Yeah, I've mostly been running off of my uh, off of one of my phone's hotspots Ooh, just nice. to try to make things happen. Fortunately, I got here to the office and the internet's been working at least decent. Hope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it cuts out Crazy, in three, man. two, one. <laughs> yeah, done. <laughs> that was the podcast. Was- <laughs> oh Jesus. Uh, but yeah, but I was just pretty much agreeing with your point anyway, that, that over here, you know, we've got, we've got examples now of where the noise at work legislation does not suit the theater industry. It does not suit the creative industry. It doesn't work for them. They, they, they cannot do, they can't forget innovate, forget be better. They literally can't do what they need to do with that legislation. So, so it just doesn't work. Well, I, I, I want to get into this, um, this controversial subject that you, that you seem to have. I want to start with the zero uh, target, target zero, and then I want to move on to the Heinrich principle, his his triangle. So sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna actually I'm gonna stick with the, the triangle to go first. Let's start with the triangle. So okay. Heinrich's principle of the triangle, I find interesting that like you uh, something you said earlier that maybe alluded to you agree maybe with with a, a position of tim marsh tim marsh dr tim marsh in, uh, or professor tim marsh actually in the uk quite a big traditional ba- behavioral based safety person but it's it's actually quite um flexible in his approach he actually like if you listen to him he says you know what he likes about this kind of sydney decker's work and safety differently movement to call it that is that it's, it's actually helping him communicate something that he was trying to communicate for many a year through BBS. Um, but he, anyway, to get to the point, he says that Heinrich's principle is, is right in that the triangle itself kind of works in that there's always bigger things at the bottom causing the little things at the top. And that's the easiest way I describe it. But then sure. I feel like we bastardized it exactly the same as what we did with bbs i made it extremely simple by saying if you have one million near misses that will result in one fatality so if you resolve one million near misses you will never have a fatality it's just not as simple as that is it yeah well and i think i think some of it is that is that the predictive capacity of that lower level those lower level events is just not there Mm. It's, it's really just not there right um I always like to share this. It's kind of like this: is okay. We've had we've had 150 near misses around handcuffs, and we had 65 handcuffs. I'm just making up random numbers. And then if we have the 67th handcuff, that's going to be fatal. That's just not true, right? That's that's, that's just things just do not happen like that. Uh, most fatal events are kind of those out there black swan events, mm. right? 
Um, where, where I do kind of agree is, yeah, for sure, just, just for the kind of grand scheme of the pyramid, you're going to have a lot lower level stuff than you are fatalities, hopefully, right? You're, all that stuff is probably going to accrue. The real argument is that I just don't see that they're connected, right? Mm. I, don't, I don't think that you're going to have, a, at least in modern safety organizations, or excuse me, modern organizations. So let's, I'll, I'll use a kind of a, a large scale organization that I work with uh, quite often. They, they have so, I'll, I'll use ankle sprains as an example. They have ankle sprains that no two are alike, right? So some of the theory there is that, well, these have to be similar, right? They, these lumping together have to be predictive to, eat, to kind of meet the next level, right? And then if we get enough of the next level, then that's going to take us up in severity and that's going to take us up to the highest level of severity. But it's still back to that point that um, the fatal events are not necessarily predictable by the lower level events that occur. That's my beef with the pyramid. We like to look at, or organizations like to look at it, and I totally agree that we, we oversimplify it because we crave this kind of linear, simplistic approach to that stuff. It's easy for us to look at it, it's something that's easy and fancy for us to put in presentations. We can hang it on the wall. Uh, but the unfortunate part is that we've created an entire generation of leaders that believe that if you just manage the little things, you don't kill people. And that's not true, right? Because if that were true, we wouldn't be killing people right now because we don't have little things happening in most organizations. Well, let me rephrase that. We don't have little things reported in most organizations, right? So let's, 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 let's look at it from that perspective is that if that were true, most organizations do not have enough stuff to incur fatalities yeah. based off of these kind of general principles, right? Most really good organizations, uh, they're just not meeting those thresholds to where technically by that theory, you should be seeing fatal events, right? It's nothing, 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 nothing for years. And then boom, fatality, yeah. right? nothing, 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 boom, fatality, right? So if you just look at the general kind of industry data, at least here in the United States, uh, all those kind of lower level events have been going down and down and down and down and down and down for years and years and years and years. And the effect of fatalities has been nothing, right? Mm. Fatalities have remained persistent. So if that were true, fatality should have come down, right? Uh, you kind of see the initial kind of implementation of OSHA and all that kind of stuff and the fatalities kind of drop. Mm -hmm. but they've just plateaued and they've just stayed, even though we've gotten, I'm going to air quote this, better. Mm. Right. We've gotten better lowering some of these lower level events. Um, but for me, it kind of gets into this space. And, and this is a conversation I was just having the other day is that we try to view uh, pre fatality prevention programs the same as we do just all of safety. And they're not the same. Right. It's not the same. We try to manage and I'm going to use that word loosely. I mean, no disrespect around this. We try to manage fatalities right? The same way that we manage worker behavior. We're trying mm. to manage fatalities the same way that, that we manage slip trips and falls. And they're just not the same thing. I think that that's probably my biggest problem with the pyramid is we try to lump all that stuff together and say that fatalities are the same things as slip trips and falls. Mm. If you have, and let's say again, you have, you have a thousand slip trips and falls at the same elevation, a thousand and one's going to be fatal. <laughs> probably not. Right. If you have a thousand people fall in your parking lot, thousand one's probably not going to be the one that, that finally bites the dust. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just probably not true. So I think it's just difference in approaches. I think it's a different approaches to how we have to look at fatalities. Right. We have to start to understand the stuff that kills us. Right. And we have to guard against that with essential controls. Mm -hmm. Right. We're not going to be able to predict fatalities because if we could predict them, we wouldn't have them. Right? That's probably the number one thing. If we could predict how, how someone's going to die at work, 
we already probably do that, right? You think about a lot of the, the stuff that we work on in their profession and in our organizations, most of that low hanging fruit is gone though. Yeah. Like most of that stuff, those, those mangled in a gigantic unguarded set of gears is mostly gone, right? That's, that's, you know, the, the kind of, the, the, the horrific images of the industrial revolution that you think about of people getting, you know, children, workers mangled into equipment and stuff. Those days are gone, right? Those, those are not here. Um, so our, our, our fatal events really are the things that are kind of black swan events that if we would have, if we could have imagined it, we would have prevented it, mm. right? If we could have, have just thought about it, we would have prevented it, right? If we could have imagined it and implemented essential controls, it would have occurred. And most of those situations where we can imagine that people would die, we've already implemented those controls pretty effectively. So usually where we see people die at work, either we haven't imagined it or our essential controls were lacking. And it really doesn't have anything to do with the fact that we had slip trips and falls or handcuffs or anything else. For sure, if you have a near miss, it's like, hey, that dude almost died there. Yeah, we're probably going to work on that. We're going to make sure, oh, holy crap, somebody can die doing that. Then we're, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're probably, we're probably going to work on that. But I think my, my kind of big long rant here with that is, is really more that I just don't see, and it's quite the opposite. I think the evidence shows that it's quite the opposite, that lower level data is not predictive of grander things to come in and around the safety space. Lower level data in that pyramid does not predict fatal events, right? And again, the, the, the BLS data here in the United States continues to show that on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I, I like, um, I, I like, I'm a fan of simple pictures or explanations. I'm a very simple minded man. And um, I, I always kind of come back to when I think about this one of Sidney Decker's charts in that he kind of just does a, no, a normal kind of chart and then a line along the top of the chart, which is your fatality. Once you cross this line, you will have a fatality. And every single day, there's a little a little loop that kind of goes nowhere near the line. And then there's a big loop that just nearly touches the line. And then the next day, there's a half a size loop. So actually, every single day, we're, we're nearly near that fatality, no matter how many times we're addressing everything else. What What would you kind of say, though, to the argument that, I, I think sometimes I, when I kind of, I'm, I'm pretty much on the same side of the fence with you when it comes to this, these kind of, uh, th- this argument and some of the kind of stuff that I would get back thrown at me would be, well, surely if you're not managing all your kind of, if you're getting loads and loads of small incidents, sips and trips, it's an indicator that the business is not managing their safety. It would be one thing that I would get come back. Which I, I don't know because if, all you got to do is look at look at um, not not Piper Alpha. What was the other one um, where BP were going and celebrating how good they were at safety? Um, about deep water. Yes, deep water. Yeah. You know, you know. It's it, it. Let's flip it on its head then. That argument and say, well, BP at Deepwater Horizon had indicators left, right, and center that they were amazing, but yet that fatality yeah. still indicated. So their triangle was not indicating that they were not managing safety. Their triangle was actually indicating that they were managing safety. What they weren't managing was that single fatality, that fatal event. Yeah. Well, I think it still comes. Some of that comes back to that is that we have to we have to kind of break those two apart. Safety is not just safety, right? We have to break those two apart. If you mm. want to manage slip trips and falls, there's probably a particular way that you manage slip trips and falls. If you want to try to work on the stuff that kills you, you're probably not going to work on that the same way that you manage slip trips and falls. Yeah. So I think that we have to kind of disconnect those two a little bit. A good point. Fatalities, fatalities are different. 
right? And if we want to prevent fatalities, we need to focus on fatality preventions. We don't want to necessarily focus all of our time trying to manage slip trips and falls thinking that that's going to stop the fatality. Because yeah. again, back, back back to the evidence, it just it just shows that it, it really doesn't, right? A conversation I was having with a really good friend of mine yesterday actually was, was around something very similar that most organizations aggressively manage the wrong things. Mm. Right, we, we, yeah. we aggressively manage the wrong thing, oh my and that's God, a really yes. good example. We're going to manage slip trips and falls, and thinking that that's going to keep someone from being electrocuted to death. Mm. Well, I guess electrocuted is to death, right? I guess that is to death. But yeah, you, 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 not necessarily, you know, I suppose. I, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, I had to look up the definition of electrocution to see. To see you get what I'm saying, right? <laughs> yeah, is, is that is that is that we we aggressively focus on the wrong things, and I think that we see that picking back on observations a little bit we think if we just focus hard enough on that stuff then we'll be able to prevent this mm. right and if we want to be able to prevent this we probably need to focus on on that right we probably should focus on what we're trying to prevent um but yeah i think that it's, it's a really interesting thing because most organizations desire that very seductive and simple information that's just okay if if i can just work on these these things down here then we can prevent this from happening so and it again it just it just does not it just does not play out that way it just never mm. plays out that way any fatal event that you can look at um i mean at least in a modern safety era uh it was you're there's several questions that will always typically be answered the same and we never imagined that this would happen we could have never seen this coming mm. right I, but this this would never happen and some form of energy moved some form any form and touched employee and killed them Absolutely mm. right, and we we see that I've I've unfortunately had the uh, ha, had the uh, opportunity to sit on several uh, fatal injuries um, investigations, and that's some those are things that you see in all that is mm. that we never could have imagined that that would have occurred. We it mm. was so far outside of our imagination because if it wasn't, we would have done something about it, right? Yeah. So I think it's I think it's back to that, right? It's it's still back to this though, is that we have to disconnect those two and understand that managing lower level events harder is not going to stop people from dying at work. Mm. If we want to figure out how people die at work, we need to start to understand it in normal work. We need to go out, we need to learn from normal work. Mm. Um, a really, a really interesting point that was made to me um, by Bob Edwards, actually. Um, I sat through one of Bob's classes in Las Vegas not too long ago. Bob was the only reason that I went to Las Vegas to the safety conference was to get to listen to Bob, which is really cool. Um, so those of you that don't know who Bob Edwards is, you should definitely check Bob out. Um, awesome, awesome guy. Um, but it was this, it was that, you know, when we go out and we start to learn from employees, and it goes back to that kind of general hop or safety differently kind of principles that we need to ask people, we need to learn from people, we need to ask people what they need. Mm. When you go out and you start learning from people and you, it's back to the trust piece, when we start building that trust and you go, okay, show me how this works and, and you build up that trust, then you're going to get this, this really this relationship where the, they start to understand that, okay, there's, I can be honest here. There's an environment of honesty here. And that person would go, holy crap, you think this is bad. Let me show you where I almost died the other day. Yeah. Right? And that's how we really start to work on that stuff. It's not through counting harder. <laughs> it's, not through, it's not through trying to reduce numbers. Um, because the real problem here is this, and it's deep water. We'll kind of circle back to that is that on paper, Deepwater Horizon was great. Right on paper, most organizations that are very focused on numbers are great. Yeah, because we literally bribe employees to not report things. Yeah, we bribe them with, with cash or we threaten them with a stick to not report things. I call it watermelon reporting. So there's green on the outside, red on the inside. Yeah. 
I stole that off somebody. I can't remember who, I who it that. was. That's it's really good, isn't it? I stole that off somebody who probably stole it off somebody else. <laughs> and no one can remember the source. <laughs> well, that's, that's the great thing about safety, right? We, <laughs> you, just, you just steal and share and make it a little bit better. That's how we, yeah, how we True, yeah. <laughs> that's what I tell people. That's, that's my indicator of success. If people yeah, sorry I interrupted you. Well. Carry on. No, no, no. No, no, but it's, it's that, right? Is that it's more about creating honest environments than it is about focusing on numbers. Mm. If we focus on numbers, we're not going to create honest environments, especially if we focus on numbers and incentivize, whether through stick or carrot or whatever we want to call it, right? If you have a million hours without that, we're going to have throw a pizza party. Right? Mm. Who cares, yeah. right? But that's going to drive that behavior, right? You're going to ultimately, it, it's, it's this, it's, it's, again, I was having the same conversation with a, a dear friend of mine yesterday, is that organizations literally pay people to not report things mm. right you're paying for that zero right here's where the zero piece comes in yeah we're telling people that we want zero because in our mind for zero to be real for heinrich's theory to be real all things must be preventable right mm. so if, if zero is real things everything must be preventable so if we go down that path of everything being preventable zero is the best state it's the end state and anybody that has been around this profession for more than five minutes understand that there's not an end state. And that if you get zero, it's probably fake. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I think of these wonderful stories and uh, my, mine is not as, as, as wild and tragic as kind of Deepwater Horizon, but I think of being on sites that are, you know, in locations where these, these uh, kind of zero cultures exist. Uh, and, you know, they'll, they'll get a certain hour rate and everyone will get some money and you know they're, they're we've had zero for a year and then we'll bring in a pizza party and we'll do this and yeah. do that and then a couple days after somebody you know rolls their ankle and, and and here we get an osha recordable and everything's terrible again right we're yeah. awful because somebody rolled their ankle well, I think it, it wouldn't happen though would it because bob would go oh no don't report that sam because right. or else we won't get our pizza pay which is your point Exactly. Yeah. So who's, who's actually going to report that stuff? And I actually shared that. Uh, I, I kind of just kind of picked on the pyramid a little bit too. I shared that on LinkedIn a while back where it's the pyramid. It's like, it's like the stuff that I'm definitely not telling you about at the bottom. Of the <laughs> stuff I might tell you about when you get a little bit higher. You get all the way top. It's like, okay, I have to tell you now. Right? And most organizations that create these zero cultures and these number based cultures and these, you know, or again, we're too focused on data. Hmm. We're, we're aggressively focusing on the wrong thing. We're too focused on, on data as thinking that it's going to predict where things are going to go wrong. And if we can finally just measure hard enough, then we can stop bad things from happening. And that's just not true. Hmm. Right? And the only thing that we do is we, is we create an environment where honesty is not possible with our employees. We create an environment of zero. We create an environment of zero reporting in our organizations. We create an environment uh, in which our employees cannot tell us things because our numbers are more important than our employees. Mm. Uh, and we're surprised. We're surprised that we have zero for a year and then all of a sudden we kill somebody. It mm -hmm. seems like the logical end of that to me, mm. right? That seems like where that, where that would naturally go. But there's, there's some much bigger things at play there. Again, we kind of touched on some of that, that organizations have this deep desire to measure. And we think that if we measure harder, that's how we can do betterment and all this kind of stuff. But it just, it just never works. It just never works that way. It's interesting. I think you nailed both the triangle and, and zero in, in that one piece, uh, which, is, which is very efficient of you. Oh. Have we gone? Yeah. You, your face is froze. There you go. <laughs> oh no! It's saying my internet's yeah, you're, you're, stable I can see now. You froze. I see you froze too. 
uh, same way, and that's unstable. Our, our problems from Phoenix have migrated to your oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Can you imagine? We're we're there. We're we're over. We're overloading the internet with all this awesomeness. That's yeah, that's it. That's it. I got. There's, that, there's no. You know what it is? It's 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 traditional safety terrorists are attacking. <laughs> <laughs> Get this off the web. Get it off. Uh, <laughs> I, I, and, and we've gone on like this has got so messed up i couldn't even tell how long this podcast has been anymore i've, I've lost all concept of space and time uh, what, what we've would... been here for a week is actually what's happened <laughs> <laughs> crowd rise is over everyone's gone back to work <laughs> right, right we're just locked away in bunkers talking about safety differently <laughs> Oh, it's, it's, there is one one kind of last thing I want because I think you addressed the triangle and, and zero very well in that. So so we're trying to brush over triangle. Uh, sorry, zero. Um, but how do you kind of deal, or what's your response to those kind of uh, maybe staunch safety one people that would say, "Well, well, Sam, you and all the other safety differently people, safety two people, you're you're trying to say that." Rule, we, rules don't exist in work. We should have no rules. Um, and, and the reason I ask this is because when coronavirus started, um, I actually, I've actually screenshotted the post. And when, whenever, I don't get many, but whenever I get a keynote or anything like that, I use this post in, in to say that the, one of the biggest problems with safety is safety professionals. And that we're too busy bickering with each other than actually delivering what we want to deliver. But anyway, before I get on my, my soapbox, the, the point here is that no. this this lady put this post on and she said, um, well, now we've got coronavirus. It's a corona question, corona question. Where are all the safety differently uh, or safety two buffs now? How, how could you preach no rules now? A, now the government's implementing all these rules. It's obvious that rules work. And I was just like, oh, she's completely missed the point of this. But however, I'm, I'm not going to bite. And my comment was, you, one, you're immature with that post. Two, it helps nobody. And three, like, get off my feed. <laughs> but but it, they they, right. they do have that opinion. So so I put that to you. You know, you, you're advocating no rules, Sam, aren't you? Well, and I, let me. I'll, I'll address some of that right out of the beginning of kind of that post that you just mentioned. Is this? Is that? I think if anything, it's shown that that. Uh, we really need to think about things differently because most organizations went into this thing completely lacking the capacity to deal with it. Mm. Right. We had to adapt and we had to figure things out and rules did not help us do that. Mm. People helped us do that. Mm -hmm. Organizations figured out how to do that. Preach. We figured out how to do that. Yes. Right. So at the end of the day, what was really forced was the fact that we had to adapt. What are you, so you mean just following their normal rules? And I think a really good example of it is this, right? I had somebody come to me the other day. And so back to compliance, right? So again, OSHA with us, right? You know, we have to go through, we have to, we have to medically qualify people to wear respirators. I'm just using respirators as an example. I'm, I'm still, a, 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 again, I'm still dealing regular safety stuff too, right? <laughs> we're, 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 you know, they, they come in and they're like, well, we have to wear respirators, you know, and we have to, we got all these N95s, but most of our employees, uh, they're not fit tested or have medical clearance, but the rules say that they have to. So if we if we religiously followed the rules, those people wouldn't be in respirators. Yeah. So that's what we've got the same problem. Around, is mm. that if we didn't if if we didn't break those rules, you would have hundreds of people unprotected because you're too stupid to understand 
that the rules can actually hurt you in those situations, right? Mm. <laughs> that's the only, I, I hate to be mean, but that's the only way to put it. It's no, I think, stupidity, right? I think there's a point to it. And I think that, that we've, we've got that exact same problem that face fit, face fit testing, it, it, it's, it just, just, just doesn't work in this kind of situation. That, that, that right. the, the rule probably does so, work for 99% of the time, but there needs to be that flexibility right. and it's these emergencies. Yeah, exactly. But there needs to be the flexibility right. in these emergency times where we, as safety professionals, in my opinion, should be, uh, should be w- worked with to say, right, Sam, James, face fit's not going to work. How do we mitigate that risk? How do we control that? How do we do as much as we can, whatever word you want to use, to, to stop, to be, uh, enable back us to back. wear those respirators? Back, back to our point on being risk adaptive. Yeah, I like that. Instead of just being rule followers, right, we're being risk adaptive, right? We're mm. figuring stuff out. We're understanding that religious compliance can actually harm us. Mm-hmm. Right. That if we just religiously comply with the rules, number one, nothing's going to happen. And when I mean nothing work, like work's not going to happen. If you look at the amount of rules that actually apply to someone on any given day, the amount of rules that they can actually follow the rules that they actually know. If you go to work any given day, you probably break thousands of rules that your organization has. Mm. Right. The sky's not falling. The building's not burning down. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's usually not at least right. Usually not. Mm. Right. So it's, it's that it's understanding that this, this is this really important concept. Rules do not create safety. People create safety. Mm. That's the end of that. That's really it. Because if rules created safety, I could write a rule that says don't cut your hand and people would just magically stop cutting their hand. <laughs> rules do <laughs> not We would be out of the job. People create safety. Right. Exactly. I wish it were that easy. I can yeah, so do I. I would <laughs> wrote a book I saying make rules. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. But that's that's our kind of normative approach to safety. It has been with kind of those mm. traditional kind of zealous folks. Is that well, if something bad happens, we need a rule, we need a procedure, and we just enforce that, and then bad stuff stops happening. Mm. And that's just again, it's just not true. We're we're trying to take this really complex thing, which is the creation of safety, right? And we're trying to give it this very linear and simplistic thing of just write a rule again if that were true I, we could have just written a rule that our pod, that this podcast would have just worked marvelously from beginning to end and we wouldn't have issues and i wouldn't have mic issues and everything would have just been fine because we could have just wrote it down and it would have been fine right mm. but that's just not true right Where, rules do not create safety people create safety on the fly while they're doing work mm. right rules can be helpful so this to kind of address the the other side of your question there is that i'm not advocating for zero rules i think that that uh, most humans crave some sense of structure, right? I think that we need some probably a little bit of structure. I know I do. I like having a little bit of structure, right? But I think that we focus on the wrong rules, right? We get, we've gotten so mm. focused on trying to write a rule for everything that we've lost focus on the things that are really important. We end up mm. with rule books that are hundreds of pages long instead of being maybe two or three pages that they should be, if that. Right. Where it's like, hey, look, this is the list of the stuff that kills you here. This is the stuff that you need to not do. Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is the stuff that you need to focus on. Instead, we're writing rules um, that that you can't have food and drinks in stairwells and that coffee cups have to have lids and yeah. that, you know, you 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 have to uh, you have to do 360 degree walk arounds around your vehicles and you have to do all this kind of weird and wacky stuff. We write rules for all that stuff instead of saying, hey, listen, don't touch that. It'll kill you. 
Mm. (laughs) I think think we really get too deep into the rules. And I think a lot of it comes from the need to hold people culpable after something happens. We have to have a rule to go back and then hold them to and say, Mm. you should have followed that. And that, again, it's back to that, back to that, uh, the views on people. I think if you start from a better place, a better, if you start from a place of trust with people, I think the rules kind of naturally start to declutter themselves, right? You start to understand, maybe I don't need a rule for every single thing that someone's going to do, because I actually trust you to figure out some of that on your own. Mm. And, I, and I think if we were to go with this, like, I, th- I think in, in, in the UK, at least, I'm not sure what your kind of, uh, your kind of restrictions around coronavirus have been, but in the UK, I think it's been a testament to 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 what you've kind of just said. In so in the UK, we've got a a very small handful of some very strict rules. Pubs are shut, restaurants are shut, schools are shut. Right? Strict rules. They are. They are. You can't. You can't go around them. They're shut. End of. Shut your pub. Right? Right. Then you've got the other flexible rules. Is, is how I kind of look at them, which is, a, I suppose, an oxy, oxymoron in, in itself, but the, the kind of flexible rules to say, you know, work from home where possible. Yeah. Only leave the house when you need to. Right. It, it's, right. it's creating not so much rules, but guidelines to say, to encourage Sam and James to stay at home. We're not saying stay at home, but my, and to get to my kind of my point is that it's interesting that the reaction from the British community, at least, has been this kind of need for rules. A lot of people kind of put in and, and I hold my hands up, even I did in the beginning, I kind of misinterpreted these rules and, and kind of viewed it as a full on lockdown and realized, actually, when I step back and I look at it, there's a lot of flexibility in this. And, and the government actually spent a lot of their time arguing, saying, no, 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 we've not stopped work and we never did stop work. Mm-hmm. We, we've always said your shops can carry on, but they enabled the businesses to make their own decision. And what actually happened was most businesses just shut for about three or four weeks. And then they went, okay, we, we've, we've taken as much as we, we had the capacity to take. We now need to open again. Um, but it's interesting that a lot of the stuff I see on social media is people actually saying, Oh my God! What? Why are they? Why are they still open? That should be shut. What's going on here? And there seems to be, which I think, right. I think what would happen in a workplace if we kind of went down this model of hop and and you you've never kind of, especially in the UK, if you've never kind of seen it before, and then you just go boom hop. That's what we're doing. Hop today. We're doing hop for the rest of our life. There would be this initial, I think, uh, desire for rules and comfort because do you think it would feel uncomfortable for the the beginning? Maybe does that make sense? Yeah, I, th- I think I think that it would. I think that it'd be definitely scary. I think it w- it would be a little scary, and and that's what that's what I see. Um, I think it'd be scarier for organizations than it would be for frontline employees because frontline mm. employees do this stuff already. I think that's the more interesting conversation I have as I as I kind of wander around being this evangelist for Hop and kind of talking to organizations and seeing how this stuff manifests. Um, employees are adapting right now as we speak, whether you think they are in your organization or not they are yeah right definitely no matter how much you think that that they're following work as designed work as designed is not real life Mm. they're adapting right now they're figuring out your problems for you and they're making it they're they're, they're doing it successfully 99 percent of the time Mm -hmm. right so most employees that i've talked to a lot of what i spend time doing uh, is doing like focus groups and talking to frontline employees and kind of pulsing organizations and 
most employees will see, because I think you really have to start there, right? You have to start with kind of the mindset of the organization and see how that manifests. Um, but you, 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 most, most uh, employees will say, gen, just generally speaking for frontline workers, um, they'll say that, you know, it's not that I don't want rules. It's that I want the right rules. Yeah. I want the rules that make sense. Don't don't write a rule that says I need a lid for my coffee cup. And <laughs> yell at me when I forget to put a lid on my coffee cup. That's kind of not so great, you know. If there's rules that are important, if they if they are truly important rules, they'll be important to me. You won't have to sell me on them. You won't mm. have to explain to me why it's super duper important that I you know. But if it's if it's just dumb, I'm not going to do it, right? <laughs> so we have to forget that 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 we're dealing, or we have to remember that we're dealing with people and we have to think about ourselves in those situations. If you put me in a situation to where it's completely, completely counterproductive and it, and you couple that with being maybe dumb, right? I'll just use the term dumb loosely. <laughs> you couple that with maybe being dumb. Um, and, and then you, you, you expect me to just use that process. I'm not going to use it. I'm going to find workarounds. That's normal human behavior. Yeah. Right. If, we desire efficiency. We want efficiency, right? We want to get through point A to point B as efficiently as possible. It goes back to kind of what Conklin says. We're as safe as we need to be without being overly safe because that would be kind of dumb and slow us way down in mm -hmm. order to get done what we need to get done. Yeah. Right? We, we're as safe as we need to be without being overly safe to get work done. Yeah. Right? So we figure that stuff out. That's always happening. So to the scary part about the rules, the pointy end of the organization, I don't think it's going to be that scary. I think mm. for them, at least what I've seen in, in kind of hop or organizations that have embraced hop or safety differently or anything in this kind of new safety system space, mm -hmm. they've kind of gone, the frontline employees have gone, finally, finally, yeah. you listen to me. Thank you. <laughs> finally, you give me a document that I can use that works for me, that's usable, that's not 100 pages. Finally, you give me a rule book that fits in my pocket and is not mm. something that I have to carry around in a wagon behind me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You know? For the higher levels of that organization, it seems like the higher you go, the, the more fearful they become because they think that they're starting to lose control. And it's not even control. They, they, they Here's the magic word. They think that they're losing accountability. Yeah. Right. Interesting. So most organizations have kind of a skewed view of what accountability actually means. They believe <laughs> accountability is something that you do to employees, right? Yeah. They believe accountability is something that you demand that you mm -hmm. can do to or make folks comply with. And it's obviously not right. But it's that, it's that they feel like, well, how are we going to hold people accountable without all the rules, right? And I don't mean to get too far down, down this rabbit hole into this rant, but it's this, is that when you have all those rules and you're beating people and you're doing the sticks and carrot kind of stuff, you're actually decreasing accountability you're, because you're creating, you're creating victims, right? You're creating yeah. victims of your system. So when you create victims, accountability is gone, right? When you give folks that kind of trust and you say, go forth and figure things out, right? And even post event, you broke it, you fix it, figure out how we can fix it, right? Figure out how we can, how we can work on this, how we can better it. That's a huge, better way or a much better way of accountability. And they'll take account to, do it to employees or creators. So I think if you, if you give them the space, they take accountability themselves. Like, Absolutely, like yeah, exactly. if you give the people the freedom, we used to call it pride in our, in our work. That's what we used to call it. Except, right, yeah, we have ownership of what we do. Yeah, exactly. And it's the same thing. Except nowadays, we don't we don't allow people to do that. It's the same as how we started this conversation. It might have been on the other recording. Like I say, this has gone wrong so many times. I don't have a clue what we've talked about, what we haven't. But it's um, it, it, we we used to call it that pride in, in work, and and actually, it's just it's just saying to back in the day, it used to be right. You're a plumber. 
we need we need some plumbing please off you go and they would do it and they would do it to their best of their ability because they wanted the word of mouth they wanted to be the, the next best plumber right except now we go right we need some plumbing what we want you to do is get a 3.2 millimeter diameter tube and make that and i have no idea whether that's a big enough tube or not i just that's the first number that came to my mind right, right. but we we procedure out accountability we, ironically is what we're trying to do is create accountability i actually got turned down from a job once because they said hey we're looking for somebody to uh, to drive accountability down and i said well i think i think i'm the wrong person for you then because if you're trying to drive accountability down you've got the wrong end of the stick and actually ironically to me that feels like you're trying to avoid your own accountability mm-hmm. exactly well and i think it's so it's a shift there's a couple of things there i think that that are, are really important that you touched on um, there's a big shift, and I think when you when you look at traditional safety versus safety differently, let's just call it safety differently, and that can accomplish yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. Um, there's a massive change in overarching approach. We talked about the assumption. So I'm a huge Edgar Schein fan. If folks don't know who Edgar Schein is, you should totally go read Edgar Schein stuff. It talks about organizational culture. He's he's the, he's the person when it comes to organizational culture. Go read his books now if you don't read them. So I'm not I'm not I'm not going to dive too far deep into the underlying assumptions. But let's just, just say write his name down. That's one I haven't heard of. Edgar yeah, Schein. I can I can send you. I, yeah, I can send you some stuff afterwards if you'd like. Oh yes, please. Um, but he, so we start with that assumption, and to me, that assumption dramatically influences the organization's overarching approach to everything, right? So we see those things from those assumptions. What manifests is really our beliefs and values in our organization, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in the safety space, I just like to call it the overarching approach. In safety, traditional safety or safety currently, right? Uh, mostly, we view it as this kind of accountability up culture, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it's, it's top driven, right? It's top driven and there's accountability up. And a lot of the shift that I like to explain is that when you change that, uh, that kind of that stuff behind the scenes, when you change those assumptions and we already touched on that around humans or human error, all that kind of stuff, your overarching approach changes. It really shifts to this. It shifts that it's really, uh, it's, it's really more responsibility down. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more driven at the pointy end with responsibility down through the organization rather than than more traditional systems where you have accountability up to. Right. And I'm holding you accountable. And that's something mm-hmm. that's something that I do to you. Right. So I think that's a huge shift for most organizations. That's a massive shift for organizations to understand that it's it's, it's that it's that it's not so much about holding people accountable because you can't hold people accountable anyways. That's just not how that works. Right. Uh, it's not something that you do to people. Um, but you can be responsible down through your organization to your employees, right? You start kind of at the top and be responsible down all the way to the, to kind of the pointy end of the stick. Definitely. Definitely. And uh, to be honest, Sam, that I could probably talk to you about this for hours. Yeah. and hours and yeah, yeah, yeah. hours yeah. however it is half past seven where i am i am absolutely hank marvin which means starving um <laughs> and i like i say i have no idea how long this podcast has been but i i would like to give you the opportunity to plug your book because i am in i am attracted sure. by by the um by the title safety sucks and then there's another liner underneath yeah. and correct me if i've got this wrong which is the bullshit that uh, safety professionals don't tell you was that did i say that right Basically, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's safety sucks. The bullshit about the safety profession they don't tell you about. Yeah. So it was that. It was kind of back to that frustration, right? Um, 
and a lot of folks that have seen me or if you don't see me you, you you'll, you'll notice that a lot of what i talk about is betterment and mm -hmm. making the world a better place to work and what what safety sucks really was about was doing that for our profession as well we spend a lot of time focusing on trying to make things better for others but we haven't really focused on our own profession um, there's a lot of stuff that led up to me about you know seven eight years ago uh, almost walking away from this profession altogether i was ready to leave i was just done uh, a lot of it had to do with the way that that safety professionals are treated by organizations a lot of it had to do with um uh, just different things right I, we kind of touched on a little bit about it uh, but the, kind of this um kind of this this uh this guru mentality that organizations wanted to create now so i'll just i'll pick on a little bit of of, of some of what we just talked about um was that safety professionals were supposed to be viewed as these kind of shaman at the great safety office up on high where we <laughs> hoard information. And then when people need it, we, we, we administer rules and information back to the people that do. So in essence, we take away the stuff from the people that actually do work and give it to us, the people that don't actually do work, which is kind of not great. Right? So all that kind of stuff, uh, it, it was that it was, it was all the frustration that I had with safety as a profession. The book's not so much about how to do safety, Mm -hmm. It's about safety as a profession, the like struggles that. that safety professionals face, the issues that we commonly have in kind of the profession. And I wanted to address some of those things kind of for our own, because I feel like, you know, we need to kind of fix our own house. We need to get our own house in order before Definitely. we continue to kind of, kind of better what we're doing. Uh, but yeah, it was born out of frustration. I wrote an article on LinkedIn a while back called The Six Sucks uh, of the Safety Profession, a kind of similar title, The Six Sucks of the Safety Profession, bullshit they don't tell you about. And I addressed a lot of the topics in kind of the little quick blurbs that are actually covered in the book so folks could check that out on LinkedIn. But that's what started me down the path of actually writing the manuscript and then actually ended up putting it into a book. Um, was the fact that when I wrote that, I had such an outpouring from safety professionals going, oh my God, that's so true. Holy crap, that's so true. They're yeah, sending me stories and sending me all this stuff of going, I have a very similar situation. And what what really kind of made me passionate about writing a book is I heard so many stories of, and I, 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 I really I characterize it as this, is occupationally induced depression and occupationally yeah. induced anxiety. Mm -hmm. Kind of all this stuff that safety professionals are facing because of the, the really the nature of the way that a profession has been really designed right mm -hmm. so i really dive into those things in the book it's a pretty short read it's 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 not like some big massive bible i wanted it to be pretty enjoyable quick read you know something that would be fun um i it, it is kind of uh, uh i'm not an author so it is kind of rude and crude and i vent a little bit and it's kind of all that kind of stuff i love that i do offer some of my opinions and, and some of some solutions for some of the things uh, that I believe uh, plague our profession. So it's it's that, yeah. So that's it's you can find it pretty much anywhere. It's uh, it's on Amazon. It's on multiple different Amazon marketplaces. So it's it's uh, it's available on Amazon in the UK. It's available. I have a pretty big uh, audience in Australia. It's available in, in the Australian marketplace as well, obviously as well as stateside. You can check it out from my website as well, uh, which is thehopnerd.com. You can also get it from our our other web is hopuniversity.org. Or you can just type in, uh, there's, I have a few different, I, I, I hoard, uh, I hoard domain names. So <laughs> you, can, you can type in safety sucks.net and find it that way. Or you can type in zero sucks.com and you can oh, really, you can find it that way too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. We, I would say I'll link all of them down in the description, but I'm not, I'm going to link. <laughs> that's just way too many domain names. <laughs> I'll, I'll link your website. You all website. kind of go to the same place. So. Yeah, true. Yeah. Perfect. 
I'll the link easiest, you. The easiest way to find me is just just the hopnerd.com. Yeah. Um, I publish a bunch of articles there. You know, you, awesome. can, you can find all any of the other stuff, either the hopnerd.com or hopuniversity.org. That's the easiest way to find all of my stuff. Awesome. And people need to go check out the Hopnerd podcast as well because I've been listening to that last couple of days and it's uh, it's been really good actually. I've really enjoyed it. I like your style. You know, it's like- crazy. It's crazy because I, I I do so much stuff that I forget that I have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I forget, I forget to plug it. The podcast is just kind of the constant that I'm like, oh yeah, well, I do that too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I try my best to keep the. It seems it seems like we have a very similar style. So yeah, mm. I'm sure I'm sure your audience would enjoy us as well because yeah, I think uh, they will. We, I, 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 I'm just no BS. I just talk about what's on my mind. I like to keep it conversational. We have a ton of great guests. Uh, we just had Sydney Decker not too long ago, so I'd encourage folks to go check that out because Sydney Decker is just always brilliant and mind blowing and amazing. Yeah, just, just a, very lucky to have him on. So yeah, I do. I do have the podcast. It's the Hot Nerd Podcast as well. <laughs> awesome. Right, Sam, I'm going to go get my dinner, and uh, I'll let you enjoy the rest Absolutely. of your day. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Sounds for, great. well thank you thank you so much for having me on no thank you for coming on i'm sorry for all of the tech i've never had that many technical problems in one recording no i, I, like I said I, I think i think it aligned on both ends to make it try to not work but we yeah. managed through it. we adapted <laughs> we adapted and we, we we overcame the problems and that's it you know, it was just a, about <laughs> a prime example of how safety should be Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I, like I said, just, oh, I loved it. It was just a great chat, real relaxed. We had so many technical problems. It was unbelievable. So it was his mic went first, and we did about 40 minutes of, of that interview, and we were just like, nah, this isn't going to work. It's it's too bad. So if the quality is too bad for rebound and safety, we know it's bad, right? So we nipped that in the bud. We started straight away again. And then there was internet problems. Oh my God, it was just, just an absolute joke. So anyway, we got there in the end. We got some good conversations. I couldn't even, like there's so much, bloody dogs. There's so much that we talk about. Um, that I wouldn't even know where to begin. There's so much as well that I think we've given you for other content. So whatever books we kind of mentioned, we're going to link them in the description below. If they're Amazon links, they're going to be affiliate links. So we get a little bit of a kickback as well. Thank you very much. Um, if you're going to go buy some pegs for your new clothesline or something, make sure you buy it through that link because then we get some money. So yeah, all the kind of podcasts and stuff we mentioned, I'm going to link all that in the description to make it uber easy for you to kind of get much more information. Obviously, we're going to link Sam's podcast, A Hot Nerd, we'll link Safety FM as well, um, and we're also going to link the Hop University as well, and don't forget the end Making Safety Entertaining po- uh, podcast, what is it? It's a, it's a webinar, Making Safety Entertaining webinar, we're going to link that below, 1st of June, 4 o'clock UK time. Um, come and check that out, there's me from Rebranding Safety, there's Sam from the Hop Nerd, there's Jay from the Jay Allen Show, Safety FM, and there's Abby from the Safety Justice League as well. So all of us kind of doing our thing to rebrand safety, make it entertaining, get rid of that kind of over-the-top, crazy, checkboard Charlie kind of um, mentality. I just have a laugh. I have no idea how it's going to be, how, how, what we're going to talk about, whether it's going to be good. I think it's going to be good because, like, look at the chat me and Sam had. It was so good. We spoke to Jay Allen as well. Um, I was uh, very lucky to be interviewed by him on his podcast and we had a good chat as well so I think it's going to be cracking little webinar I think it's going to be well good so please 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 
click the links below and get yourself on that on that pod on the thingy magic. I can't speak today. I've really lost my mojo since I had that month off. I had February off. Was it February? It's February off. I've really lost my flow. You know, I used to have a really good flow with this stuff, and it's just gone. It's just absolutely gone. So anyway, yeah, come come over to that webinar. I, I, I think it's going to be wicked, fam. Honestly, I think it's going to be well good. If you listen on iTunes, give us a rate and review. If you listen on Google or Spotify, just hit the follow button or whatever it's called. That would be muchly appreciated. If you think of one person, just one person that would benefit from this, then please share it with them. Please share the wealth. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. That's all I ask for. It's not much, is it? Considering I'll make you a, a long form interview once a week and a short form how to video once a week for your listening pleasure, completely free of charge. I don't think that's much to ask. Um, so yeah, don't forget to check out DRM's online courses as well. Cracking little course. We've done it, me and the wife. We're cheery fam. I mean, I was low in Feb. Low, proper low. Now I'm like, boom. Yeah, life is good. Life is not good. We're trapped inside. Can't go anywhere. Thousands of people are dying from coronavirus. Life is not good. But it's good if you're in the right place in your brain, which is where David gets you. Yeah, so you can survive this stuff. Kind of like that resilience and capacity. It's building capacity in your mental or cognitive kind of space. You've got capacity and therefore you are resilient. It's all the same stuff, bro. All the same stuff. So... Go on DRM's online course, help me pay my pay my bills, which is just really nice of you, and then build yourself some mental health capacity, become a resilient person, and all this stuff will just blow over whilst we sit in the Winchester and have a pint. If you get that reference, then you get it. If you don't, you probably don't deserve to be listening to this podcast. Catch you next week, peeps. Safe.